Hey everybody, I'm Robert. Hi guys, I'm Chris. And we're the Film Flamers. Love is in the air, and it's time for us to do another deep dive. So, what better film choice than Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. God knows I love a mouthful. So It's the feel-good movie of February. (laughs) That's right. This movie has been on the docket for quite some time. I think since we decided we were going to start a podcast, I think we all knew well we all i think chris and i both knew that eventually we were going to get to bram stoker's dracula yes and it's uh it's it proves to be a fairly contentious film strangely enough yeah i don't mm, i don't hear a lot of people talking about it that often and in fact uh before re-watching it for this episode i hadn't seen it since i was like 19 or 20 so we're talking like you know, two, two decades ago 20 years ago yeah, for me, I have to pick this movie off the shelf like once every two years or so, maybe, you know, two to three years, because I just, you know, I saw it at a very formative age and, uh, you know, I wanted to see it as a kid for so, so long. And finally, for my birthday, my parents let me watch it and it freaked the fuck out of me. I think it was like my 11th birthday or something. I don't know. But yeah, I uh, fell in love with it and I've watched it every few years since then. And I've shown it to people that had never seen it before. Matt hadn't seen it before and he and he dug a lot of it but I have seen people like an, uh, another podcast came out and said uh, they covered it I forget who it was but they didn't like it at all and then I saw another post recently where uh, they were doing like unpopular opinion threads or something and it was like unpopular opinion Dracula sucks or something like that oh that's bullshit and I was just like what so I, I don't know um I don't know if you guys haven't seen it check it out listen to this podcast see us uh you know listen to our deep dive and uh let us know what you thought or if you hate the movie and don't want to watch it again you know let us know why what are the reasons it'd be very interesting to me i would also be interested to know those things so uh bram stoker's dracula is a 1992 american gothic romance horror film another mouthful directed and produced by francis ford coppola the screenplay was written by James V. Hart, based on the novel by Bram Stoker. Stars Gary Oldman as Count Dracula, Winona Ryder as Mina Harker, Anthony Hopkins as Professor Van Helsing, and Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker. And a plenty of others that yeah. we're going to mention. <laughs> it's a stacked cast, for sure. It really is. It's one of the best cast of any horror film. Amen. The score was composed by Wojciech Kilar and has a closing credits theme song. Uh, written and performed by Annie Lennox called Love Song for a Vampire, which actually became an international success. I just love it when you say that composer's name. I know like there have been multiple episodes where I'm just like in awe of it. And so, (laughs) (laughs) well, this is one of the best horror scores of all time. It just is. You'll see it on a whole bunch of people's lists. Uh, It's definitely on mine. It's one of the first scores that I really fell in love with uh, as a kid. And I've always had it on my, uh, you know, favorite film score playlists. There's just so many good, you know, motifs in it. And it's just so singular and iconic. Uh, you just, uh, it's been used in trailers and other films and like so many things in this movie, it's, uh, you know, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. And for, uh, for sure it made your list when we did our top 10 favorite movie scores countdown, uh, back last, um, January, January of 2018. So, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely. If you guys haven't listened to that episode, go back and check it out. It's a really good one. And so without further ado, let's just jump right in. This is Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Ha, 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 ha,
Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah, Dracul. There's a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. And met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face, can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist as vapor, as the fog, and he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go to him. You've got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Join me in eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. I want to be what you are. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Take me away from all this death. mistake. He must be stopped. In 1462, Vlad Draculia, played by Gary Oldman, leaves his home and wife, Elisabetta, played by Winona Ryder, to battle the invading Turks. He returns home victorious, only to find that his wife has committed suicide by leaping from the castle to the river below after Dracula's enemies falsely reported his death. A priest at the castle tells him that her soul is eternally damned for taking her own life. Enraged, Dracula desecrates the chapel and renounces God, declaring that he will rise from the dead to avenge Elisabetta with all the powers of darkness. He stabs a stone cross and drinks the blood that pours out of it, only to realize moments later in agony what he had just done. Four centuries later, in 1897 London, an ambitious solicitor named Jonathan Harker, played by Keanu Reeves, is assigned a new client, the Transylvanian Count Dracula. He is replacing a colleague, Renfield, played by Tom Waits, who has gone insane upon his return from visiting the Count. He breaks the news to his fiancée Mina, also played by Winona Ryder, that he'll need to travel to Transylvania to finalize the Count's London real estate acquisitions. Mina is disheartened but allows him to go while she stays in the home of her wealthy and very horny friend, <laughs> Lucy Westra, played by Sadie Frost. In Eastern Europe, Jonathan has a very strange trip to the Count, anchored by a warning from a gypsy who gives him a metal cross to wear, warning, 
den die Toten reiten schnell, for the dead travel fast. Jonathan arrives at the castle to meet a very old Count Dracula. While finalizing paperwork, Dracula discovers a photograph of Mina, who he recognizes as his long-dead wife Elisabetta. Dracula orders Jonathan to write letters to Mina, his family, and his firm, telling them that he will be staying at the castle for a month, which Jonathan begrudgingly agrees to. While settling in for the night, Dracula warns Jonathan about visiting other parts of the castle. He does so anyway, and explores some nearby rooms. In one such room, he is seduced by three women, who attack and feed on his blood. Dracula leaves Jonathan to the mercy of his brides, who continue to drain his blood each night, making him too weak to attempt escape. Dracula sets sail for London, sleeping in crates filled with decrepit soil from the bowels of his castle. None of the crew on the ship survived the journey. Meanwhile, back in London, Mina receives Jonathan's letter and is worried because he seems so cold and distant. She's distracted from her worries momentarily by a lavish party hosted by the Westerners, attended by Lucy's three suitors, Arthur Holmwood, played by Carrie Elvis, Quincy Morris, played by Billy Campbell, and Dr. Jack Seward, played by Richard E. Grant, who's now treating the insane Renfield. Sometime after the party, Lucy agrees to marry Arthur, but Mina's still very worried about Jonathan. Dracula's ship arrives in London amid a fierce thunderstorm, and he emerges from his crate as a wolf-like creature in search of blood. He makes his way to the Westerner home, where he hypnotically seduces and feeds on Lucy. Mina interrupts the attack, and Dracula hides after recognizing her. As Mina leads her away, the traumatized Lucy exclaims that she can still taste her attacker's blood in her mouth. The next day, Mina walks the streets of London. She meets Dracula, who introduces himself as a visiting prince. After rudely rebuffing his advances, she apologetically accompanies him to a showing of the newly introduced cinematograph. But during the show, a wolf who had escaped the London Zoo in the storm of Dracula's arrival enters and frightens everyone away, except for Mina, whom it corners. Dracula comes to her rescue and tames the wolf, and in doing so, charms Mina. They begin to see each other regularly, and Mina confides to her diary that she has developed feelings for him. Lucy, meanwhile, is preparing for her upcoming wedding to Arthur, but is taken strangely ill. She sends for her doctor and former suitor, Dr. Seward, who is perplexed by her symptoms. He sends for his respected teacher, Dr. Abraham Van Helsing, played by Anthony Hopkins, who quickly travels to London to assist. Jonathan, still at Dracula's castle and at the mercy of his brides, has decided that he must escape once and for all in order to survive. After falling out of a window and into the river below the castle, he makes his way to a local convent where the nuns write to Mina and request that she come immediately to his side. She writes to Dracula that she must leave and they must never see each other again, which both devastates and enrages him. Mina makes her way to Jonathan and the two are married at the convent. Meanwhile, Dr. Van Helsing arrives in London and his fears are quickly realized. Lucy is the victim of a vampire and as she dies, she is becoming one herself. When Dracula attacks one last time, Lucy dies horrifically, and after her funeral, is interred in the family crypt. That night, Van Helsing convinces and readies her suitors to make sure that she will not rise again. But when the four men enter the crypt, they find her coffin is empty. As Lucy enters the crypt feeding on a small child, the men attack her. She tries to escape to her coffin, but Van Helsing orders Arthur to pound a stake into her heart and then cut off her head. 
Mina and Jonathan return to London, where Van Helsing has discovered that the master vampire in question is none other than Count Dracula. The men decide to kill Dracula in his new home, Carfax Abbey, while Mina waits in the neighboring asylum in Dr. Seward's quarters. They exercise all the decrepit earth with Christian rituals, depriving Dracula of any rejuvenating powers he has derived from it. During the attack, Dracula becomes a mist and enters Mina's room to reunite with her and confess the truth of his nature. In love, she allows him to feed off of her and drinks his blood in turn, condemning her to an eternal life of never-ending hunger. Van Helsing and the suitors return to Mina to discover the tryst, and after a brief display of his dark powers, Dracula escapes, and everyone gives chase after him, back to his castle in Transylvania. Mina is slowly dying whilst they travel, but she and Van Helsing finally make it to the castle before Dracula, where Van Helsing dispatches him of his vampire brides. Dracula approaches this castle with the hunters close behind. A battle with his gypsies ensues, and Quincy is stabbed in the back. As the sun disappears below the horizon, Dracula explodes from his last box of decrepit earth, only to get his throat slit by Jonathan, while the wounded Quincy stabs him in the heart with his large knife. Realizing Dracula is defeated, Mina comes to his defense, and the others allow them to retreat to the chapel, where centuries ago, Dracula held his dead wife. Dracula and Mina share a kiss in the chapel, and he begs Mina to give him peace. She thrusts the knife through his heart, lifting the curse as he lays dying. She decapitates him and gazes up at the ceiling fresco of Vlad and Elisabetta ascending to heaven, reunited at long last. The end. There's a lot going on in this story. I know we say that all the time after a synopsis, you know, but um, we try to be thorough and this is classic literature. So there really was a lot going on. Yeah, there's just like the the novel and I've, I read the novel a couple times and it's really just like a collection of letters, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is actually one of the only adaptions I feel like that really integrates those letters a lot. Yeah. You know, in the writings and stuff, even like diary entries and and everything. Um, and I thought it did that well. And it actually serves as pretty good exposition, you know, uh, as compared to, you know, some some other ways of doing that. And I'm sure that we'll talk about source material a little later on. Um, I'll just preface it by saying like epistolatory novels like that are not something that I, I tend to gravitate towards. It's really not my bag. And so it took me a long time to finally make it all the way through. Bram Stoker's Dracula, the novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dracula was released on November 13th, 1992. It opened at number one at the box office with almost $31 million. And it dropped off in subsequent weeks, losing over 50% of its audience after that first weekend. And ultimately, it would exit the top five after three weeks. However, it did go on to be a box office hit, grossing $83 million domestically. Worldwide, Dracula earned over $215 million against its budget of $40 million. Yeah, and it had a lot of um, like stuff around it, too. Like It had like action figures, and it had... like. Um, you know, a fucking video game. Yeah, a video game that I really <laughs> yeah. wanted. I never got. Um, it was on my Christmas <laughs> list for like two years straight. I never got it. Because this I, is we like didn't Super have Nintendo time, right? I or, mean, it was, uh, yeah. No, I think it was like a Sega Saturn or something weird. Or it was something that I didn't have. And <laughs> maybe, I don't know. There was different games. But anyway, it did it did well. You know? Yeah. It was, uh, I think it was a surprise. Dracula is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with 73% approval rating with an audience score of 79%. The site's consensus reads, 
Overblown in the best sense of the word, Francis Ford Coppola's vision of Bram Stoker's Dracula rescues the character from decades of campy interpretations and features some terrific performances to boot. I really completely agree with that. Yeah. Overblown in the best sense of the word is like mm-hmm. a really good way to describe this movie, right? I completely agree. Yeah. Audiences polled by CinemaScore give the movie an average rating of a B-. This is fair. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars, writing, I enjoyed the movie simply for how it looked and felt. Production designers Dante Ferretti and Thomas Sanders have outdone themselves. The cinematographer Michael Bajas gets into the spirit so completely he always seems to light with shadows. Ebert did, however, voice criticisms over the film's narrative confusions and dead ends. And that might be just as much to blame as, you know, the original novel. I don't know. Uh, I like things that are kind of kept in mystery. And it, and I think that um, this movie doesn't explain too much, certainly with a lot of the things they're showing going on in the background. But we'll get to all that later. Kenneth Turin of the L.A. Times called the film not particularly scary, not very sexy and dramatically over the top, criticizing the tone and several of the casting decisions. Mm, I can't agree with that at all. I he's basically saying all the things that we like about the consensus and saying that it's bad. And I'm like, it's terrible, terrible, terrible. Speaking of casting decisions, there's a lot of criticism of Keanu Reeves' performance as Jonathan Harker. Josh Winning of Total Film says that Reeves spoils the whole movie. <laughs> what? He wrote, I know, I mean, it's not that bad. No, it's not. So Josh Winning wrote in a 2011 list called 50 Performances That Ruined Movies. You can visibly see Keanu trying not to end every one of his lines with, dude. <laughs> the result? A performance that looks like the young actor is perpetually constipated. Painful for all parties. <laughs> He's on a bunch of lists. He's yeah. That this performance is on a bunch of lists. It's so horrible because there's a few choice scenes like him and Mina, and then him and Dracula, you know, that are just bad. And his accent has been on lists, you know, of like the worst ac- accents done by actors, you know. So I, you know, fair enough, you know. But I don't think it's so bad that it ruins the movie. No, and it just kind of takes me out of it for like two scenes where he's just terrible and from there on out he's kind of used a little bit less but in the scenes that he is in he works really well with the ensemble because i was really trying to pay attention to that and uh like i said i I feel like he gets better or at least as a character he gets better as the movie goes along where he gets a little bit more agency and he really doesn't have all that much screen time anyway you know i mean it's a really small part in the whole of this particular movie i mean hell even some of the suitors have larger parts than he does so yeah that's true. Dr. Seward. But he just has this like linchpin role, right? Where it's just kind of the cornerstone of this movie where he is the audience. You know, he is the how we meet Dracula, really, you know, for the story. And um, he's a freaking, you know, wooden bench <laughs> <laughs> for the audience to sit on. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> A feature by Ask Men called Acting Miscast That Ruin Movies <laughs> expressed something similar. <laughs> it's one thing to cast Keanu Reeves as the esteemed British lawyer, but it's quite another to ask him to act alongside Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> I don't know about esteemed British lawyer, but I mean, if you're acting alongside Anthony Hopkins, especially in this movie, I think that, I mean, everyone's going to be overshadowed a little bit by him. So um, Here's what Coppola had to say about his casting choice, though. He said, we tried to get some kind of matinee idol for the part of Jonathan because it's not such a great part. If we were all to go to the airport together, Keanu is the one the girls would just besiege. 
So fair enough for the time, you know, I guess, you know, and since then Keanu has found roles where he doesn't have to be emotional at all and can just kind of write out a movie and you know what he's found his niche and it's great and by <laughs> god he's like stood the test of time he does yeah. not look very much different at all he's aged incredibly well yeah so. he's the real vampire uh good for you keanu because fucking gary oldman looks like an old man now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> although winona Ryder looks amazing now too though so it's yeah just she like, really does maybe it's just those those 90s actors just haven't aged at all i don't know hmm. they signed some sort of deal with the devil so this movie was nominated for four Academy Awards, winning three of them for costume design, best sound editing, and best makeup. All extremely well-deserved, in my opinion, with one loss for best art direction, which lost to Howard's End. It was nominated for four BAFTAs, uh, visual effects, costume design, makeup, and production design, but won none of them. Uh, it got five Saturn Awards, one for best horror film, best director, best actor, best writing, best costumes, and five losses. So it was nominated for 10 Saturns. Mm. Um, it lost for best actress, best supporting actor, best music, best makeup, and best special effects. How the fuck did this lose best music at the Saturn Awards, which even like, like, I, I just, I need to know what won. Like, I was shocked that it wasn't nominated for music for Academy Award. Well, that was a really good year for music as far as the academy awards go i know that i mean so aladdin won that year and i don't think there's any stopping aladdin right yeah and i think like the other nominees that year for best score were like basic instinct was one of them and so i mean after having listening to listen to this score quite a bit since watching the movie the other day i mean i i completely agree with you it should have got an oscar nomination and quite frankly it didn't stand a chance for best original song either because i mean i i sort of remembered it being nominated for academy award for best original song but no you know so i think with aladdin and the bodyguard that year no movie stood a chance in that particular fucking category so sorry any lennox fuck a whole new world won over fucking uh i have nothing from bodyguard yeah so i mean whatever which yeah. one's lasted well, I guess both. <laughs> <laughs> Which one hasn't lasted, Nothing. probably? Which one do I keep singing every day? <laughs> <laughs> Not a love song for a vampire. Uh, the film has appeared on many, many lists after its release, such as Entertainment Weekly's Five Best Vampire Movies, Esquire's 20 Best Vampire Movies, and Sexiest Horror Movies Ever Made. And a fucking men to that. This movie is sexy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Oldman's performance has also been on many lists, including The Guardian's 10 Best Screen Vampires, The Best Version of Dracula, According to Screen Rant, and Sci-Fi's 25 Greatest Movie Performances from the Last 25 years rightfully so i'd say should we talk about a little bit of the background first for this movie and how it was made yeah because there's a whole lot to unpack as far as like you know production goes and i think the best way to, to start talking about this is like i guess from the movie's inception right so yeah so the movie was made in part because of winona Ryder, right so she's a huge fan of the book and then got her hands on the script that had been kind of floating around and immediately brought it to francis ford coppola so she was the meeting was going to happen anyway because she had to drop out of the godfather part three at, at short notice due to being like super exhausted and like medically exhausted or whatever that's called which put the movie like weeks behind schedule so she was trying to like clear the air between them and she basically upon parting and it was you know it was fine they had got along you know everything kind of made their peace she left the script she's like read this if you can and she's like this is francis for coppola he's never going to be interested in a genre film but 
Uh, Francis Ford Coppola was always a fan of the book. In fact, he was uh, a camp counselor and he read the entire book over the course of the camp to kids to help them fall asleep. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, to like nine-year-old boys. Yeah, so his, she she saw his eyes light up when he saw the title, you know? And so that was just like marriage made in heaven. And so they both went to like Columbia and tried to, you know, start making the movie. And, you know, obviously it got made. But... um the love story component is actually not Francis Ford Coppola. It's actually, of course, all of due to the screenplay by James Hart. And James Hart has also done a bunch of other adaptions like Frankenstein, you know, and like a bunch of other like literary adaptions too. So, yeah, so he did the Mary Shelley's yeah. Frankenstein that followed this one, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's sort of like this whole um, renaissance of, you know, horror literature that was being made after this. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the love story part is, is not in the novel. Right. I mean, and, Mina and Jonathan's really, but. Yeah. And it's, it might be alluded to if you read it that way, but and I think this was kind of new, just to, a way to kind of sell the film or just put a new take on it while still being, you know, even more like I was watching a YouTube video of like how close to the original source material. And this is like first or second place of all like the 30 fucking Dracula films that have been made. This is like the first or second place as far as close to the material. Right. Um, and still with that kind of emphasized or added romance story, but this guy also did like hook and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was, we just said, um, Muppet treasure Island, <laughs> Yay! contact, yeah. you know, um, Oh, uh, you don't like contact. No, what a fucking slog that movie is. Oh my God, I love that movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, based on the novel by Carl Sagan. So he does a lot of these book adaptions, you know. So that the romantic story is basically due to him. And so like Francis Ford Coppola doesn't take any credit for it, though he said it was interesting. Uh, but he tried to do his best to make it, it authentic to the book as he could outside of the screenplay, as well as like interject some points of history that we now know about, like Vlad the Impaler with visual storytelling, like the beginning, um, as well as like the book Van Helsing is looking at, Vampire. Yeah. I think it's the same book in Buffy. Yeah. It really <laughs> does look like, very similar, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Might have been a call out. I have to say, I really enjoyed the romantic aspect being added to this. Um, when I was in the eighth grade taking honors english we had a list of classic novels and one one a month we had to choose and read and if you completed the entire list meaning you read extra you got some special award at the end of the year and i'm so nerdy that i was going to do that right and so i was like well i'll just read dracula it's horror i'll like it and like i said earlier like epistolatory novels i just don't like maybe with the exception of a color purple but I could not make it through this. And I was like, that's okay. I've seen the movie, you know? And so I went to take the test and failed miserably. (laughs) So while it's close to the source material, if you solely rely on the movie, then you're not going to do well in your English courses. So let that be listened to everyone listening. Read the book. (laughs) Yeah, I've read the book several times and I actually didn't have a problem with that. Maybe at first I did. And I was just like, like, it, it was just like adjustment in my mind, you know? Um, like this is almost like a found footage equivalent of a book, right? Where right. it's just like, hey, here's all these collections of letters and stuff like that. And I think that in part is why it succeeded so much in 1896 or 1900 or whatever when this book was published, you know, because it was um, it was almost like, like I said, found footage where it's like, oh my God, did this actually happen or something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting uh, to see it from that, that point of view. And most people don't know that about the book. I think that I would like to go back and maybe listen to it. If you could find like an audio copy or something where it was treated more like a radio Video drama or something where someone was reading the letters, actually, the diary entries. Yeah. Then... So this is a fun fact that actually hit my cutting room floor. But Richard E. Grant, who played Doctor Seward, actually is the one that reads the audiobook. 
if you're interested. Oh. Okay, I am. So there we go. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so Francis Ford Coppola really wanted to portray Dracula as a fallen angel, like vis-a-vis Satan or Lucifer. Uh, his fall is almost like a direct opposite or a twisted version of Christ's ascension, or at least communion, uh, with like oh. the drinking of the blood and stuff. And you could talk about this like in the history of vampires themselves. Uh, but it's implied and stated several times that this was a man of great renown and courage and intelligence in life, but it was an even greater is the need to stamp him out utterly from existence, just kind of like the Lucifer myth, right? And and Francis Ford Coppola knew that the studio would not allow him to go on location and uh, rom- like in Romania and shoot all the actual castle, uh, you know, shoot in the actual castle dracula um which is not really the castle dracula but they say it is for tourism um especially after his legendarily like over budget over time on movies like apocalypse now uh even though that was kind of his own money in that case but he told them that he would do it completely 100 percent in local studios and they jumped all over that and so he had originally wanted to shoot on location but he knew that they wouldn't so he got excited about creating an illusion just as they were at the turn of the century when they were you know telling stories and um like the the rise of the cinema cinematograph that they actually show in the movie you know and and um and how like magic shows and, and illusion were illusions were done. And he wanted to make the movie like that. So that was part of how he got so excited about it. So he wanted to shoot it with those limitations and how it would have been shot with illusions and forced perspective and et cetera, et cetera, and use no modern techniques or visual special effects. I think the only thing that I caught while watching it was like contact lenses for the vampires. And it's super impressive. I mean, everything that he and his son, right, were able to create in this movie is just astounding to me and it's just so visually pleasing and i mean it's just it goes to show you that you don't have to rely so heavily on computers you can create things like this and make it look wonderful well and it it is not that it looks wonderful in some cases it looks a little awkward but that makes it look real and grounded because it all is happening in camera or with like um at the very least with um running the same film you know, twice and exposing it several times with different film reels or whatever, the same way they would have had to do it back then, matting out parts of the screen, you know, Mm -hmm. so the Ten Commandments were made or, you know, things like that. But there's something with the tone of this film that's so singular because like looking at how it was made and they made like mood boards with all these like classic paintings of hell and demons and, um, different things for the costumes and how it would look and feel. And they're like, here's a mood board for act one. Here's a mood board for act two. And, and so they, they really tried to nail down a tone for the film before they ever started shooting anything. Right. And I I feel like there's something almost like a graphic novel about this film with like a series of moments that this whole film is like centered around and panels. It gives the film almost like a, like a sense, like right on the edge of tongue and cheekness, even though it takes itself self seriously, but then it looks at you with like a wink and a grin. I think I read somewhere that they, they storyboarded everything and then sort of set the storyboards to film. So there's almost like a animated version of, Francis Ford Coppola's movie like they they literally shot the storyboards as they were drawn or something like that Mm -hmm. you know so I mean that's something that I would like to see very much 
I would like to see how, how close some of these storyboards were to what they actually got on film. And actually quite close in some cases, like some costumes were like um, one of the costumes was from a Klimt painting called The Kiss, right? And it's like Dracula's golden burial costume or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's straight up from a painting. I do like the sense of melodrama in this movie, though, because I know when you say like we can grin and we will certainly talk about some of like the almost overacting in this movie. I really, like I said before on this podcast, I really enjoy melodrama it's something that i grasped onto but in the case of this particular movie this is the kind of things that people would be watching during that time period anything shown on stage or any sort of like early film would be incredibly over the top as far as like acting goes or gestures and things like that and i and this movie just kind of feels all around like some sort of homage to not only like early cinema but to literature itself yeah so i mean i i completely love that so what did you think about this cast overall? I love the cast of this movie, and I, I really didn't know what to expect going in on this rewatch, because it had been so long since I've seen it, and I, I literally remembered next to nothing, you know? And then I started watching it, and things are, like, flooding back to me about how much I liked it the, the few times that I saw it as a teenager. But the cast in this movie is great, and there were some members of the cast on this particular rewatch that I noticed almost for the first time like tom waits yep. for sure oh tom waits is amazing he's a revelation in this movie for real and i don't know if maybe i just didn't pay that close attention to him on earlier watches because you're so wrapped up in the story or the bigger characters and as i've grown older i've really grown to love supporting characters in movies and tv shows and he's just so good in this movie he's so fully committed to that particular part they're small parts like, man like he's a perfect example of that in this movie. I mean, it was just amazing. I thought he was great. And I mean, and I really liked Sadie Frost a lot too in this. I thought that she was fantastic. And that that really could be the character and not the actress so much, but I don't know. I thought that she was just fantastic. Well, she, yeah, she has a face for it, but I do wonder how different this film would be if Jonathan Harker had been better cast. Like originally Johnny Depp was cast as Jonathan Harker due to his friendship with Winona Ryder. But the studio refused to cast him because he wasn't big enough at the time. But both Winona and Johnny Depp pleaded with uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who they thought had power, you know, over that. But of course, he can't go against the studio. So they ended up with another friend of Winona Ryder's, Keanu Reeves, who was bigger at the time. And I'm wondering if if Johnny Depp really would have done a better job. Um, I don't I don't know. Like, I, I like Johnny Depp for the most part in some movies, but... Not always, you know, and I would say more often than not, I don't care for him. I, and I, the thing is, is that to me, the part of Jonathan Harker in this movie is not very big, like I said before. And so I I really don't think it matters who you put in that particular role. And also, I don't think that Keanu Reeves really destroyed this movie. No, I don't, I don't think it's fair to, to put, put him on those lists or whatever. I, he's not great in it, you know, but he's not terrible. Every time I watch it, he kind of pulls me out of the movie and I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing, man? You know, this could have ended his career, but, th- you know, thankfully it didn't. But, you know, it's it's a shame that a few bad performances really kind of put a stain on this movie. Like Keanu, Winona, and Sadie Frost all have moments of wooden and flat delivery, especially at the beginning of the movie. But fortunately, uh, the movie also has some great performances, like including one for the history books with Gary Oldman. And then you've got Anthony Hopkins and, of course, the revelation that is Tom Waits. And then Richard E. Grant did an excellent job. Carrie Elwes is always serviceable and fun to see uh billy campbell 
um, as Quincy was good. Um, although I do wonder uh, if his co-star from The Rocketeer, Jennifer Conley, would have been a better Mina. It's so hard for me to try to go back and recast this movie. Like, I, I also love Jennifer Conley, you know, and I think that she probably would have done a good job. But um, I don't know. Like, having watched it now on this rewatch... I can't really imagine anybody else playing these roles. Like, I realized that Winona Ryder had some moments of woodenness and whatnot, you know, but ultimately I think that she did a really good job in this movie too. I mean, ultimately she was nominated for a Saturn Award, you know, and so, I mean, there's there's that. But yeah, I think ultimately this movie performed well with the people that were in it. And I'm not sure if you were to cast somebody aside from Winona Ryder that the movie would have made as much money. She was a big star at the time. Well, she also did really, really well as the movie went on. All of them did. Even Keanu Reeves was better as the movie went on, as I've said before. Sadie Frost is excellent as the vampire when she becomes it, you know, and all, all those moments of drama that she had to do, you know, transforming and dying and everything else, you know, and Keanu Reeves gets a little bit better but he has less and less to do you know but i would say you know even winona as she's going through her issues becoming a vampire and stuff she does really really well it's a lot of you know opportunity for an actor to do something you know versus Mm -hmm. like you know read their fucking diary but you know i i feel like some of it's uh the material some of it's just like the acting um i know that this this movie actually had a first and second unit like most do but the first and second unit both had 68 days of shooting like concurrently right so you had roman you know you had roman coppola doing 68 days of directing and you had francis doing <laughs> 68 days <laughs> and so they both had a lot of time with the principal actors so you know you wonder you know, which director would have, you know, did which scene and which director would have maybe done a little bit better. I don't know. I think that ultimately, if we're talking about the cast in this movie too, we have to give serious props to Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins. I think that both of them like sort of steal the show, you know, and and rightfully so, you know, I mean, the movie's called Dracula. So ultimately you have to make that character likable and scary. And I think that Gary Oldman does all those things, but my, my favorite person in this movie, my favorite character to watch in this movie is Van Helsing for sure. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've watched this and through periods of my life and I feel like Dracula was my favorite. And then Van Helsing was my favorite. And this watch particular, I don't know, maybe I'm feeling just a little extra gay coming off of my girls just want a weekend in Mexico (laughs) with my sister. But, um, I was like, Lucy's my favorite character. (laughs) Like everyone needs a friend like Lucy. I really enjoyed the fact that these there's like there's two women in this movie, you know, for the most part, and they're both incredibly horny. Is it like <laughs> like we're used to seeing all these like comedies where guys are the horny ones and whatnot, but in this movie, no, it's the two women and they are horny <laughs> from the like from the minute where Jonathan is talking to Mina and saying he has to go away. And she's like, but come over here to the side and let's like canoodle over here in the garden. And then looking at that book with those like drawings in it, like Kama Sutra like drawings. And yeah. <laughs> I was like, get those two women together. And they are just like, they want to get laid so bad. It's ridiculous. Yeah. When Lucy says, I want the D, maybe she should have been a little bit more explicit. <laughs> Doesn't he oh, sign his letters like that? D. <laughs> D. <laughs> oh, my God. I was just so pleasantly surprised to see such horny women in that movie. I don't know. It's a force but of no, nature. But no, you're right. Lucy is a great character. You know, I think that she's, she's fun. She's engaging. And, I mean, 
it's somebody I I don't know. I think that as a vampire, she was just fantastic. Yeah, you know, I I love that scene in the crypt very very oh, much. Oh yeah. Well, before we get too much into specific moments, like there's something I really want to kind of get into a little bit, which is the special effects, because there's nothing really like it, you know, in modern cinema. And even then, everything was done in camera. Like the team that Francis Ford Coppola brought on to do special effects eventually just told him that it was impossible to do things that way anymore. Like it would be more money, more time, but eventually Coppola fired them because he wasn't getting what he was asking for. And he actually ended up hiring his like 20 something year old son instead to do, uh, due to his obsession with like in camera effects and magic, you know, and, and illusion. So for example, instead of like creating that, there's like a scene where, you know, the train passes over the diary and kind of a montage and the, right. you know, you can see the shadow of the smoke and the train going over the diary. Right. You do that with like, compositing today super easy you know you know maybe the shadow is a little bit less so but you'd be able to do it really easily digitally in comparison so what they ended up having to do was literally create like a 15 foot wide diary (laughs) (laughs) and have the model train in back of it so they could all shoot it in one plate you know and so it's just like stuff like that that makes it all so real in the camera um all of the the castles and houses buildings uh carfax abbey all of that stuff was just models you know set behind and then like you know with um double exposure and everything else i was as watching the movie too and I, I maybe it's just random in my brain or some weird call out but every time they had a wide shot and you could see the entirety of the castle it looked to me like the wicker man right or so that's from a painting so it's uh it's showing the road to hell and the and the devil i think is on a throne or whatever and his head kind of goes yeah. up above the clouds or whatever and so they wanted to look like a decrepit scary disgusting demonic dilapidated castle like but a man on its throne just like and it did dead look like on his throne and so it really did and it looks pretty iconic and of course they show what it looked like back at then like in kind of the beginning of the film and it looks beautiful so they were able to do kind of both sides to it which is really good the art the production design was amazing i love the shadows i love what they do with the shadows in this film and um, I love that they can affect physical objects and act on their own. I love that they were all done like in camera with no animation. So like, you know, the famous first one where Dracula's shadow is is going up to Jonathan and like strangling him or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was all rear projection, right? So like the entire wall behind them, including the giant map that's behind them and everything was just rear projection. That's the only way they could do it, you know? And so everything was just in camera and it just makes everything look so much more real. It was just a guy miming Gary Oldman behind the, <laughs> behind the screen, you know? <laughs> it's just like how they could have done it in 1900. And it's it just gives this, this movie kind of a charm, right? But there's a lot of good subtle effects, um, that were done in camera this film like when Dracula's giving Harker a shave um, the tapestry covered walls are actually literally closing in on him and I'm not sure how many watches I noticed that before I caught it this time and like gave me the chills I had to rewind it because you can literally see like the walls just literally being pushed in and as soon as he's Dracula sees the cross I guess that he's wearing the crucifix in the, in the reflection of the razor um, the walls just like jump back and it's a big yeah. room again. And I was just like, holy shit, there's a lot of this like subtle stuff going on in the background. Like this time I also caught projections of the diary as Jonathan's writing Mina from the castle kind of on the wall in the background, really, really light getting written and stuff. So it was just it was just a lot of subtle, interesting work like that. The rats 
climbing on the ceiling, I think, is one thing that you notice. Yeah, I mean, it's just, to, to me, like, everything about that castle, it's like the laws of physics and nature just don't apply to it, right? And they, they show that with a lot of, like, camera effects or, like, practical visual effects. And you have, like, mice running upside down and, like, the shadows and the light, as you were already talking about, the way the sound carries in there, right? It just, it just sounds neat and it looks neat. Everything they did in that castle setting at the very beginning of the movie just really creates a good tone and feel for what's going on it's moody as fuck and i love it yeah. so and the, i feel like the production design overall not just including like things in the periphery like all the visual effects and things like that but things as obvious as like the costumes right and so this movie kind of coined at least in the industry the term the costumes are the sets right and so you've got a lot of other movies that kind of try and kind of copy that a little bit and it's almost like Kubrick or even like uh, Citizen Kane in nature where you've got all these like you've got these actors but they're like kind of the jewels of the set and the sets are these giant cavernous things that the actors are in the center of you know are kind of moving around in to kind of almost create a sense of claustrophobia but I do want to say that the sets are wonderful so I don't think that's quite fair right like the costumes are genius works of art but the sets are gorgeous especially in like the manor house and Dracula's castle yeah i <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I agree. I think that the sets look amazing and they're very intricate in lots of places. And I think that's really hard to do sometimes in movies, especially when you have something as striking as some of the costumes to pull away from what's going on in the background. Right. And the sets are great, but these costumes are iconic and striking and completely memorable. Even the the smaller ones, like, like Mina's green dress and top hat that she's wearing around London. Yeah, totally. Right. I think is amazing. I would fucking own that and wear it every damn day, you know? And even like small touches to the costumes, like his, his round John Lennon-esque sunglasses, right? I mean, you cannot get that visual out of your head. Mm -hmm. And even like larger things, like his, his suit of armor that looks like muscle, right? Like actual sinuous muscle is amazing looking. But my favorite piece of costume in this movie is Lucy's wedding dress. Yep. Like, cause it looks ridiculous when she's first getting tailored in it. And it's not until she's dead, you know, that I'm like, what a striking piece of costume. It's yeah, just she looks monolithic. Amazing. She looks yeah. iconic with her white skin and red lips and drop of blood and then everything on her is white lace, you know, and it's just like a weird juxtaposition that makes it so creepy. But like, that's what he wanted. He wanted these costumes to be the jewels of the sets, right? The, you know, he wanted the eye to go to them and everything kind of else to fall into the background. The production designer did not agree with this theory and was eventually fired as well. However, oh. Francis Ford Coppola <laughs> noticed that the elaborate, that elaborate sets were being made for a fairly cheap at a nearby studio. So he got two young production designers uh, from the set of Hook. Oh, of course, which is also a screenplay that the same, you know, screenwriter, you know, uh, wrote but um you know the costume designer aiko uh ishioka if i said that right you know she rightly stated that you know dracula has a very cliched style over its varied film history like it's it's pretty yeah. much one note you know and she wanted to stray as far away from that as possible so everything from the armor to the dresses and suits in london to the insane asylum guard was designed meticulously to have a certain look and feel so like many of the costumes are based off of insects or lizards some of the best examples of this were of course dracula's armor at the beginning and of course lucy's wedding and burial dress um dracula's burial garb is also of course like I said earlier based off of that Klimt painting called the kiss and i want that goddamn orange nightgown 
<laughs> the one that she's running through the garden. Yeah, it's a little flowy. <laughs> so flowy. <laughs> you know what? I swear to God, we should. You should get one in orange. I'll get one in green, and let's just see if we can just like <laughs> recreate that scene in my backyard or something. Sometime. And we need to go to that the fucking Overlook Hotel or whatever the one that actually has the labyrinth. <laughs> That's right. You know, <laughs> and like wait for a stormy day to go out there and run around in those night guns from Bremster. <laughs> I'm sure that nobody will look at it as funny, but hey, I don't fucking care. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you brought up the insane asylum too, because I completely forgot about the costumes in that setting. Yeah. His um straight jacket with the really long arms, the like striped looking one, is just it's ribbed. Amazing yeah. too. And like they have like cages over their hands and cages over the the heads and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so it's just a completely designed movie. Nothing was just half-assed. You know, nope. so a lot of the money went into the costumes. I love how iconic Dracula is, the look of Dracula, right? We haven't talked about that yet. This is a very singular, famous, iconic look for Dracula, you know, nearly as famous now, I'd say, just as the classic look of Dracula with this stupid little black tux or whatever he's wearing, you know? Well, and depending on the generation of the person that you're talking to, I would say that it may have surpassed that yeah. at this point. I mean, like, Bela Lugosi will always be an iconic Dracula, but, you know, when I think of Dracula, I don't necessarily go straight to like a tuxedo and a widow's peak i go straight to old dracula and, and in uh, that long red ass. robe yeah. baboon ass for yeah. hair <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's the first thing that i think of when i think of dracula now i mean it's so iconic that i mean even the simpsons did it for a treehouse of horror you know and so it's Bart something that's seared into Mm-hmm. Yep. just seared into people's brains and i mean what a well-deserved oscar win if there ever was in the history of the academy like the costumes for this movie deserved every award that it got yeah. certainly that oscar mm-hmm. so there are so many good moments i know i said earlier that this movie almost feels like a collection you know just like a huge amount of like moments that the whole movie is kind of built around but there's so many like film classic moments. I feel like Elizabeth's suicide at the beginning, just how they did that with like the clouds and, you know, becoming mm-hmm. Dracula, that whole sequence, um, the shadows entering Dracula's castle for the first time. The licking of the razor is a huge moment. Yes. Um, the brides Dracula on the wall crawling, you know, down it Dracula laughing with the baby. It's the, this, the voice that they, the laugh that they use on all the trailers, Dracula at the window, you know, before he breaks through and kills uh, Lucy, almost every scene with Van Helsing and Dracula actually is just iconic. Uh, Maybe I'm fanboying a little bit too much, but I just feel like these are really, really well put together moments, you know? No, I completely agree. I think that that, that razor looking scene for sure, because I, I put that down in my notes while I was watching it. I said it was almost cannibal-esque. Like it reminded me so much of that. I was like, we had just come off of, you know, Silence of the Lambs in 91, right? And then now we have this like another looking scene or like, I mean, I don't know. It's <laughs> and Gary Oldman was drunk during that scene. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> it was midnight. They were like way over time and like they wanted to do a night shoot because like it would get people in the mood. That's what, you know, Francis Ford Coppola does. He does all these little weird things like that. And um yeah, so he was he was drunk and he just 
He, he was probably drinking because Keanu's <laughs> accent was so horrible. I mean, yeah. everyone that's supposed to be British, except for like maybe Carrie Elwes, is it's like having to, you know, is doing a different accent. You know, like Van Helsing, Anthony Hopkins is having to do some other weird accent. And, um, you know, Gary Oldman is having to do a Transylvanian accent. But all these Americans are doing British accents. So it must have been really <laughs> annoying for all the British actors. So he was drunk and he was really trying to cut his throat, but instead he just licked it or something. He's like, I'm just going to stop this right now. Uh, the, the crypt scene is, of course, I think for me, the most iconic scene in this movie when she's walking down the steps holding that baby and she's in that white dress. And I just like, it's, it's scary. It scares me okay, yeah. when she does so that. So it's everything came together. The costume, the set itself is amazing, like haunting, beautiful, but like the, the sound design, all the little kind of laughs and stuff in the background and, you know, cackling. And it's just like the sound design of this film overall is amazing, especially in like Dracula's mm-hmm. castle where you hear just like hints of things in the background, you know, but this scene in particular just they had to shoot things backwards to get her back into her coffin. And it just looks so unnatural. Jesus Christ. It looked just like just really off putting, you know, and uh, like even the cloth that she's, she's moving in is moving the wrong way. It should. So it looks kind of off and it's just because they ran it backwards and it's just done so well. And even when you have scenes like that, where like you think it would be tense and scary, a lot of it gets cut with some over the top, well, I want to say humor, and that may not be what they intended, you know what I mean? But when she, like, vomits yeah. blood all over somebody, you know? It sort of takes you out of that intensity for a little bit and puts you right back in the movie. And then, you know, Anthony Hopkins will turn around and then make some sort of one-liner, you know? So, I mean, like... <laughs> like I said... This movie really... <laughs> it takes the, it takes itself seriously, and then it, like, gives you a little slight smile and a wink, you know? And I think that's why I like it so much. You're, like, you're totally, like, grounded in the movie, and then all of a sudden, he's like, ha, 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 and says something, yeah. and I'm like, okay, this is really good. You grab I mean. your ankles for the whore, and then it gives you a reach around. <laughs> what a wonderful metaphor. <laughs> I really like the giant vampire bat scene where he's, you know, basically making vampire love to Mina, and they all come in and catch, and he turns into this massive, like, vampire bat, and he, like, stomps his foot in the, you know, Van Helsing's cross turns on fire or whatever. The whole scene's mm-hmm. really, really horrific to me and i i just love how he backs into the shadows and it's just rats you know and it's just such an iconic scene to me and i mean and i also wanted to bring up the the garden scene like the lucy seduction scene where he first gets off the boat and he's sort of like the wolf creature and it's very ethereal looking very dreamlike and she's you know sighing and running and she's got that whole orange nightgown working for her (laughs) and then when when mina gets out there and sees it like the horror immediately is strikes you in the face because she's essentially being raped you know and it's i mean it's i don't know it's a lot it's a lot to take in but it's very very pretty at the same time it's a well shot moment of a movie well they had to strike that balance a lot with like the romantic you know the gothic romance and like the absolute like sheer horror like i want to say the whole you know dracula seducing mina part like in london or whatever like you like at first like i don't really like 
get it and then like you you get sold because he's just so convincing like it's charming i've crossed oceans of time to find you you know oh my god that could quite possibly be the sexiest thing that one person can say to another i don't know <laughs> like if someone said that to me i'd be like okay like like you're rude to a guy and then you know he's like i'm a prince and i'm your servant and i've crossed oceans <laughs> of time to be with you it's like she's like i guess we can go to the movies uh, <laughs> no the next thing she said was i want the d yeah just spending too much time with lucy yeah so like yeah and then that ending scene you know with the motif at the top you know it was supposed to end after she just stabs him through the heart you know to me the you know getting it out and decapitating him always kind of seemed like that's a little bit much like (laughs) just like okay we're taking it but uh actually he screened the film for george lucas and george lucas said no, he, she should take the thing out and decapitate him. So they did a reshoot and she decapitates him. Hey, I mean, it's just like an over-the-top moment in a movie filled with over-the-top moments. And like, I like the ending quite a bit, especially when it you know leads up to that fresco. And it's a really touching ending to a movie, you know, despite its bloody violent end. Yeah. And I mean, and I'm I'm okay with that, you know. I mean, I was I was crying at the end of this rewatch, watching that particular moment. So, I mean, it works. Did you did you see any like call outs to any other films, do you think? Uh I mean, like there were a couple, I think, and I don't know how far I'm reaching with some of this, but um I think there's a lot of like call outs to The Exorcist. I don't know. I mean, maybe with some of the like religious iconography and how everything takes place in a bedroom kind of thing. But mostly when they are guarding Lucy before she dies and he's like coming up to the final attack scene and everything is done with a camera, right? So it's a camera shooting up to Billy Campbell and then a camera shooting into the room and very fast moving. It just reminded me very much of The Evil Dead. And I was just wondering you know how how much of that they wanted to do for the sake of this particular movie or did they want to like call out some other horror movies that were made right i actually loved how that was photographed because evil dead is a smooth camera versus this was done almost like stop motion a little bit and so it's Mm -hmm. like you see a guy he's on the ground and then you see his hand and then you see blood splatter the hand and then you're going forward and it just really creates like this animalistic speed to it it's not that stupid like drunken style that we saw from um fallen you know that we both kind of yeah hated you know but this was done in such a way that it's really visceral and i really liked how it was done and it didn't just like look so contrived but no it was just the very first thing that popped into my head during that scene i was just like oh this is like evil dead you know i mean we we have a a character's point of view of the camera and it's sort of racing up to its its end end game and i mean that's the first thing that i think of when i see something like that i think the romance part it might have been a little bit taken from uh the 19 like 74's version of dracula where he goes to england to get the lost love or whatever so th- this was not the first romantic take on dracula by any means i think that there's some nods to yet again other dracula films like i don't drink wine you know that's not from the fucking book <laughs> you know and uh I, f- I feel like there's a real reference to kubrick a lot just on how it was shot with the large sets and everything else in the framing but also with the bed when lucy finally dies and the blood just like comes in waves from the sides it's reminding me of that <laughs> yeah. part in the shining where the blood's coming out from the elevator right and exactly it's, yeah. it's like metaphorical or whatever it's not real but 
it's and it's so over the top. You're like, holy shit, you know. It's such a jarring scene. I, I've shown this movie to several people over the years, and that's always a scene people are like, what? <laughs> when, when the wolf kills her, and then all of a sudden you just see like waves of blood coming from the sides, hitting the bed, and it's just like, and then they walk in, and then nothing's bloody, you know. <laughs> Well, it's kind of like that scene in The Hours where Julianne Moore lays in the bed and the water like rushes over it too, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that was made well after this. So, I mean, here we have Francis Ford Coppola probably influencing other directors later on. And you actually mentioned The Exorcist, and I'm wondering now, because that whole thing with Lucy in the bed and basically the need to exercise her is something in the books uh, or in the book, I should say. So, I'm wondering if Exorcist was actually kind of inspired by the original Bram Stoker novel in a way, from those bed scenes with Lucy. I mean, it's quite possible. You know, I know that 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 novel itself is sort of based on a real-life case, you know, quote-unquote, but, I mean, the author obviously took liberties, and there was so much bedside stuff as far as Lucy goes, and she was battling what they would consider to be a demon, you know? And so it's very, very exorcist all through Yeah, it. and then I'm sure this was also kind of, at least even if it's just subconsciously inspired by the film The Exorcist, you know, as well. But those moments in the film that we're talking about also breed a lot of like quotes, you know, some of my favorites being like we did a top 10 and several came from, you know, Bram Stoker's for favorite, you know, horror movie quotes. Some of my favorites are like Dindy Toten right and Schnell for the dead travel fast. I always loved that. And the new Netflix adaption, they didn't put that in, even though they showed the gypsies. And I'm just like, what? Why didn't you do that? It's like one of the best lines. It's from an, an ancient like poem. Even Charles Dickens kind of alluded to it in um, The Christmas Carol. He's like, oh, so you travel fast. And he's like, yes, I ride on the wind or something like that when he's talking to the ghost of Marley. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always, I always liked that in, this, in the novel as well as, um, as this movie. Of course, we've already talked about I've crossed oceans of time to find you. And it's delivered just so well by Gary Oldman in this. I'm, I can't even do it. And and Anthony Hopkins can make anything sound iconic, but you do not let your eyes see nor your ears hear what you cannot account for. He just, like in, in any other actor, that might have just sound like a normal line, but he just made it sound so <laughs> official. I don't know. <laughs> and of course, there's those iconic Dracula things like... Uh, You know, you impotent men with their foolish spells cannot protect you from my power. You know, Uh, do you think you can destroy me with your false or with your idols? I who served the cross, I who commanded nations hundreds of years before you were born. You know, those are just juicy, juicy lines where Gary Oldman can just spit them out while he's eating all of the scenery. Well, and I think that everybody remembers um, the line that I think was also in the original Dracula, Mm -hmm. right? Where he's like... Children of the Night, what sweet music oh, they yeah. make. That's right? from the novel as well. What sweet music they make. I can't. <laughs> His accent was so yeah. good. <laughs> sweet music they make. He said it differently, all those iconic lines. Um, and then Winona gets to sell one really well. She, you know, that actually kind of makes me grab my, my, you know, grasp my pearls a little bit. Take me away from all this death. Yeah, that was like iconic from the trailer, right? Because I, I remember that when I was a kid because I wanted to see this movie so badly in the theater. And my mother took me to see it. And I think that she was a little, uh, you know, antsy watching it because a little bit more sexual than what she had thought it was going to be. And I mean, like, as far as my parents, like violence and horror, they didn't really care. But when it came to, to like some sexual situations, oh, they were a little, you know, iffy about. So I have my opinions on that. I don't know. 
I mean, and I do too, kind of, but I, I, I don't think she was expecting it to be all that sexy, but I remember that line from the, from the trailer. Cause she like looks up and says it in just such a way. And she carries out the, like the last syllable of death so well, you know, it's just a really well-delivered line. Well, she has to convince him to get basically, cause he loves her too much to condemn her, which is a kind of a beautiful, but somehow strangely awkward scene because of how just ugly he is in the scene. <laughs> but she's just like she's trying to convince him to do it anyway you know and so she just has like one moment to do it and she sells it she does it you know and, and i i really like that you know that scene where he's just like he looks at her and he knows like fuck i'm not gonna you know she wants this as much as i want it so i'm just gonna do it you know and speaking of sexy scenes and I know we've already talked about moments but it just occurred to me that when i saw this movie as a young you know, gay tween, right? I think it was like 13 when this movie came out, when I got to see it in the movies, I was like strangely turned on by that Dracula's bride scene with Keanu Reeves. And it had been a long time since I've seen the movie, but still watching it now, I was like, this is a really sexy scene for as like horrific and scary as it is. I was like, it's pretty fucking sexy. Well, it's cool. Especially with all those little footprints that they did. And then then they're raising out of the bed, you know, it's all that, you know, you know, old school movie making, you know, in camera magic that they did. And then, of course, they're all topless and and everything else. But it's like some scenes that are beautiful and some scenes they're fucking disgusting and they're like attached to each other. <laughs> and the makeup effects for those brides was amazing, too. Yeah. I was just like, this neat, neat, neat monsters in this. Yeah. Movie. So I've got some fun facts. God bless you, IMDb. Lay them on me. Hey, I will have you know that I stayed up for hours reading things and anecdotes and watching the special features and everything else to get these. And only maybe 10% of these come from IMDb. That's a whole lot of research for this episode. Good God. I try. Tell me what they are. So when Mina, uh, you know, Winona Ryder recalls her previous life as as Elizabeth, she says she remembers a land beyond a great forest. So land beyond the great forest is the literal meaning of Transylvania. (laughs) 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 So also, this is Monica Bellucci's first American film. And of course, she'd go on to do movies like Shoot 'em Up in the last James Bond movie, Spectre. But she also played Persephone in the Matrix sequels. So, of course, in the Matrix, Keanu Reeves is again seduced by a character played by her. And she's also in uh, Gaspar Noé's first movie. Um, why the fuck can I think of what it is? But it's a touchstone in the new French extremity movement of horror movies. Mm, okay. So. She's she's got some horror cred. Liam Neeson was considered for and very much wanted the role of uh, Abraham Van Helsing, but after Sir Anthony Hopkins, still writing on the success of Silence of the Lambs, showed interest for the role, Neeson was ultimately turned down. Thank God. I don't agree. I f- I feel like Liam Neeson today would do an amazing job as Van Helsing. Back then in 1992, not so much. No, no. Mm-mm. He didn't quite have the the weight and gravel in his voice that he does today. I mean, I I just don't think that half the fun in that role is how funny he is and i just don't think that he could have he could pull it off like that so amongst those who auditioned for the part of dracula were andy garcia who had concerns over the number of sex scenes gabriel byrne armand asante no no, no, antonio banderas could have been interesting okay and uh vigo mortensen and i have to say 
I was like, wouldn't Viggo Mortensen been too young? But no, I look back at the prophecy where he actually played Lucifer. He would have been amazing. Well, and Antonio Banderas and Amanda Sante were in a movie from 1992 called The Mambo Kings, right? So they had a whole lot of success that year already. So I can see where they were in the running. But I mean, out of that particular list, I I would like to see... I, I like Andy Garcia, so I I totally watch that. But I don't think he would have done near as good as Gabriel. Byrne. I don't know. Andy Garcia annoys the shit out of me. So does Gabriel Byrne. Andy Garcia is just pretty, so really? I'll watch him do things. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, Amon Desante. The only thing I know him from was that weird like uh, miniseries for like the Odyssey. You know, like the Iliad that came out. Oh, where he played Odysseus yeah. mm-hmm. in that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Antonio Banderas, of course, we got him as Armand, which he did an amazing job at, but I just couldn't see him. You know. <laughs> I don't know that he could do any other accent besides Spanish, his own Spanish accent. <laughs> so a Spanish actor doing a Transylvanian accent. I mean, I'd like to hear it, but I think that it'd be like right on the level of Keanu Reeves' performance in the movie, and it would have just brought the whole thing down. I would cross oceans of time to find you. <laughs> oh my God. So Johnny Knoxville was the stunt guy for Keanu Reeves, which I did not know. What? Is that where he like... <laughs> Got started for all the yeah. He was the a stunt show guy. Was he on Jackass. Jackass. Yes. Christ. He was a stuntman before he did all that. I guess that explains yeah, a whole lot. He was a stuntman. Okay. A bunch of stuntmen were in Jackass and did all that stuff. But yeah, John Knoxville was the stunt guy for Keanu Reeves. I didn't know that. How many stunts did he have? Uh, probably falling off the castle and any number of weird shit that he had to do, like be thrown off of that wagon when Dracula threw him after getting slit in the throat. Sure, oh, yeah. you know, you yeah. never know. Um, Aiko Ishioka, uh, rest her soul, went on to do costumes for more films, notably for working with Tarsim Singh on films like The Cell and The Fall oh. and Immortals, all of which have magnificent costumes worn by actors in large, sometimes gigantic spaces. So, uh, yeah, if you've seen Tarsim Singh's uh, films like The Cell or The Fall, the costumes instantly just clicked. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, that is her work, man. Like just kind of semi-fantastical, really colorful, beautiful works of art that are the costumes. We have got to add the cell to our like list of movies. Sure. To cover. Francis Ford Coppola traveled to Bucharest to find the fabled resting place of Vlad the Impaler, where he was told that the body was buried without ever finding the head by the locals. It's interesting. Um, So Francis Forcopa was also deeply in debt and on the verge of bankruptcy uh, and losing their, their home as he directed this picture. Um, All of his friends said it was a mistake to do something as far out as Dracula and kind of turn their noses up, up at him for the premiere. He and his family went completely off grid so they could just, I think they went to like Guam or something. So he could just get through the weekend (laughs) without stressing out too much. If his entire career was over, but obviously the film was a success. Um, so, if, and if you recall, of course, I, I mentioned that Francis Ford Coppola went to the tomb of Vlad the Impaler, and that was because he wanted to get on his knees and thank him for his legacy because the movie was so successful and saved his home and everything else. Is that because like Godfather Three just didn't do very well at the box office? And I mean, like I know like Zootrope was his production company and things like that. No, but- I believe Godfather Three actually did fairly well, right? Um, I think it was what really did it, I think, was a movie called One from the Heart, where it, wow. it was just such a bad thing. Like Zoetrope Studios finally had to like ch- file Chapter 11, uh, like in 1990 or whatever. And when it changed its name to American Zoetrope, um, you know, but this movie basically is the movie that saved all of that from happening. So. Yeah, 
So also Francis Ford Coppola explains in the commentary that uh, Mina and Harker's wedding was a reshoot done at uh, a Los Angeles Greek Orthodox church. So they filmed the entire ceremony with a genuine Orthodox minister and realized afterwards that Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves really were married. Yeah. What? And that was actually in the news because Keanu Reeves and uh, Winona Ryder kind of uh, reconvened for a new movie that came out a couple, like a year or two ago. And, um, which has got like kind of middling reviews or whatever, but they were talking, you know, in kind of some of the YouTube interviews or whatever that they had looked back and they found out that they were accidentally married. <laughs> but like if it wasn't legal because no one ever like filed it that way, like with taxes or anything else. So it's like they could just say that they were, but like pretend they weren't. Oh, so they were like married in the eyes of God, but not in the eyes yes. of the government. <laughs> Essentially. <Yes. laughs> That's so fucking hilarious. You accidentally get married to somebody. So, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So they basically filmed the whole thing nonstop. And it was the priest or whatever, an actual priest. And they were actually doing the thing. So <laughs> I forgot about that movie that they were in recently. Cause it has something to do with the wedding too. And I, like after the wedding or something like that. I need to go back and watch that because I want to see what their chemistry is like all these years later. I'm super interested yeah. now. So Francis Ford Coppola, and this is the last one, claims that Bram Stoker's name was included in the title because he has a tradition of putting the author's name in the titles of his movies that are adapted from novels like Mario Puzo's The Godfather or John Grisham's The Rainmaker. So others have said or assumed this is a statement of how close to the novel it is, but it turns out that this is not necessarily the case. He literally just puts the novel, you know, the author's name ahead of it to give them credit. And that's mm-hmm. just something that he wants to do, which I didn't really know. I thought that was interesting. Well, and, you know, I kind of like that. I mean, credit needs to be given. And he does a lot of work based on novels, you know. I mean, Apocalypse Now is sort of based on um, Heart of Darkness, right? Which is really a, a much, much older novel, but he really couldn't have done it for that particular point. I just now remembered that he did The Rainmaker. I. <laughs> completely forgot that he's done a shit ton like i i was surprised at movies that i didn't think was francis Ford coppola was him uh or at least he was involved in like you know Patton. obviously the godfather the conversation is a hugely great movie i studied yeah. today in you know film schools apocalypse now obviously we know but the outsiders didn't realize he did that yes yeah, also a good movie captain eo <laughs> From Disneyland and Michael Jackson. <laughs> the, the Michael Jackson ride. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the Rainmaker, um, you know, and that's basically was kind of his downfall. Like he had this huge golden age in the seventies um, and some might say the early eighties, but since then he hasn't really, you know, made a huge hit since then, except for maybe Godfather part three and Bram Stoker's in the nineties in the rainmaker. But after that, he's just the late nineties and two thousands, two thousand tens, like nothing has really kicked off. And he doesn't really need to. I think that his, his legacy is in film is cemented already. He doesn't have to make any more movies. Um, and you know, maybe he shouldn't. I think I was just reading an article where Quentin Tarantino was saying that he really is sticking to his final movie thing. He's going into retirement because he says that directing movies is a younger man's game and you want to get out when you're ahead, you know? And so 
I will have to say for Bram Stoker's Dracula and 1992 in general, I think was a really good year for movies. And I don't know if it's because it was, I was reached a formative age where I was watching movies and, you know, really considering them as pieces of art and not just, you know, fun things to do. Um, but movies like Unforgiven and Howard's End and A River Runs Through It all came out in 1992 and they were all incredibly formative for me as far as like movie watching goes. Howard's End for sure is, is one of my favorite movies ever made. And when I was going through the list of awards for Bram Stoker's Dracula and it just reminded me that all these things came out in that one particular year. And I'm like, God, what a fantastic year for movies that was. And I'm really starting to think that 2019 is, you know, a similar kind of year. And these happen maybe, you know, once or twice a decade. But I mean, what do you think? 1992, like solid, solid year for I think movies. So. I mean, how old were you in 92? 10. <laughs> 10. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll be, we'll, this was iconic. This was very formative for my life as well as the bodyguard. So, yeah, I mean... I mean, if, if if I wasn't gay before Whitney Houston sang those opening lines to I Will Always Love You, I mean, it certainly was gay after I heard that. So. <laughs> but yeah, I just, um, I don't know. It just struck me that this was such a good year. And I want to go back and revisit some movies from that year and like compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. So I may be watching this one again real soon. But uh, like every movie that we cover here on the Film Flamers, we have a series of questions and we'll start out with... Is Bram Stoker's Dracula a horror movie? I think so. Obviously, I mean, it's obviously a horror movie, but a lot of people might have, you know, something to say about that because if they, you know, didn't get scared or this or that, to me, there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of scary moments, especially I was freaked out by several things that the giant bat especially freaked the hell out of me as a kid, Um, you know, but this is a gothic romance. And I have to say, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 99% sure that there are no jump out effects. There are no jump scares in this entire movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, and I, I, jump scares work for me even now as a 40 year old man. And I didn't jump. If they're original and if they're good and if they're deserved. Yeah. But this movie didn't even attempt it. It was just going straight for tone, which I love. And I mean, I agree. I think it's a horror movie. I know that a lot of people would disagree. They would call it romance. They would call it gothic or whatever, horror adjacent, you know. But when you're dealing with a vampire, when you're dealing with Dracula, which could quite possibly be one of the most, if not the most recognized horror character, then you have to squarely cement this movie in horror canon. Yeah, I mean, we've got huge amount of gore and creature and monster effects, you know, a lot of macabre. And then we go below the scene, there's loss of innocence and loss of religion, you know, and betrayal at like an epic, you know, theological level and, you know, and sexuality and questions of, of, you know, what's sin and what's innocence and blah, 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 blah. But there's just a lot of things in this movie that you, that are tied to horror, you know, and the fall of of man really uh you know as some sort of you know divine existence you know and if you want to talk about like real life horrors i think that this movie has something to say about like the sexual repression of women back in like victorian england and things like that i mean there's there's so many reasons you can call this a horror movie you know oh and yeah we could do a whole another episode just mining the novels you know stuff on the sexuality of that time you know and uh, thoughts on morality and you know women and religion and everything else 
you know, and how vampirism is a venereal disease, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. the homoeroticism of Dracula. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff to mine there that's just based on the actual novel and the story, not necessarily owned by this movie, though. Right. But right. I don't know. Maybe we can do some sort of extra thing about all those things. But I don't know. Yeah. It could be a separate Patreon conversation, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Um, I think we've already talked about this a little and maybe answered it a little, but uh, were you scared watching Bram Stoker's Dracula? As a kid, certainly. And I was, you know, and I continue to be creeped out by it in certain scenes. Uh, Certainly, you know, every time I watch it, you know, it's it's something new to look at every single time. This is an infinitely rewatchable film, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I I have to change. I I should not have let it gone, you know, two decades without watching this movie, but it really made for a very enjoyable watch this particular go round. Um, I was, I mean, I'm always a little scared when she's walking down the crypt stairs with that baby. I think it's a really intense scene. I think it's visually striking and that always Mm -hmm. scares me. Some of the creature effects scared me a lot when I was a kid. I think I was particularly scared of that two-bodied woman at the Dracula's Bride scene when I was younger. Like that really haunted my dreams for a long time. So yeah, there's lots of scary imagery and I think that, you know, people can be scared watching this movie. You see the original painting that that's based off of. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to look it up right after we're through recording, actually. Uh, so we, our new question that we've added for 2020 is, uh, out of five stars, what would you rate Bram Stoker's Dracula? This was not a perfect movie, but it comes damn close in my mind. So I'm giving it a 4.5. That is exactly what Yay! I rated it on Letterboxd the other day. <laughs> and I was expecting to rate it a whole lot lower. It's just that by the time that the movie was over, I had had such a good fucking time watching it and just enjoyed the shit out of it so much. As soon as it was done, like normally I'll start another movie or just like reflect in a certain way, but I put my headphones in and I went straight to the score to listen to it. And I rarely ever do that after watching a movie. And I mean, I just, I loved it so much. And so four and a half stars out of five is what I had to give it. Like you said, it's not perfect, but it is really, really close. Oh yeah. Well, it's like a perfect storm for me. I mean, from a technical perspective, how they did it, I'm just all over that as like a film nerd and a technical geek, you know, like I'm just, eating that up right and as far as like the costumes and the artistry and the aesthetic and the tone like it's all coming together it was a huge love letter to film into gothic romance into horror all in one and i'd say like the thing the little imperfections are like tonal shifts or like you know some of the acting and things like that you know i i might you know depending on my watch or the time of my life put it down to a four you know or something but you know right now I have to say, especially after doing all this research, you know, 4.5, easy. And I will add that I think that if, if this movie were made in a time where they had expanded the number of Best Picture nominees, I think that this would have gotten a Best Picture nomination. You know, I mean, four, four nominations for all these craft awards is nothing to scoff at. But, you know, sometimes we see these movies that are solely like awarded in love for their craft work and not just for like acting or, you know, yeah. writing, this would have been a best picture nominee. Had we had 10 nominees in 1992, I am particularly and sure about it. Especially since it made, you know, it got, you know, nominated for four and one, three Oscars. And that's a yeah. lot for any kind of horror movie. I think it's a well-received movie in Hollywood. And I, I, I don't hear people talking about it very often, and that's kind of a shame. In fact, my nephew, like, I'm sort of been guiding him on these, like, horror movies, right, as he's becoming interested in them. And I think the next time he's over, we're going to sit down and watch Bram Stoker's Dracula, because I think that yeah, he would like totally. it. Yeah, so. totally. So finally, and some might say most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Bram Stoker's Dracula? Pop 
So to me, the hottest guy is hands down Billy fucking Campbell. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> With his really big Bowie knife. <laughs> we don't always agree on this particular question because normally I think that most people would say like you know Keanu Reeves some sort of like stone cold fox. I've 90s never Keanu thought is he pretty, was but particularly attractive. He's yeah. attractive, but Billy Campbell, my god! And normally I'm not into like, mustaches, I, but he fucking wrecks it. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's so hot in this movie. I don't know. I was kind of like I was waiting to ask this question, you know, because I was watching it and I was like, I wonder who he's gonna pick, you know, because this is where I go now when I watch a horror movie. I'm like, who's Chris is gonna think is the hottest guy? And I was like, if he fucking says Carrie Elwes, I swear to God, I'm gonna come across this microphone and beat it to death with no, it. No, Carrie Elwes is just like adorable, right? He yeah. he was such smartly cast because anyone else you would just like that's an asshole you know but he has such like a little <laughs> sparkle in his eye that he just he you know you're okay you know you're we're in good hands with a carry but Billy Campbell smoking smoking hot mm, that's right and I mean I'm just biased because I'm sitting here in Texas right now and he's playing some Texan but I mean Billy Campbell outside of that mustache even today is a pretty pretty man and i'm this is probably a good movie for the straights too there's so many like tits popping out of nightgowns that you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just something for everyone <laughs> yeah i wonder how many straight guys are like oh my god her titty just popped out of that orange nightgown and we're like i would love to put that on well they kept doing that too like she's like sitting there in bed and her tits popping out and the guy's like little girl and like don't call her that don't call her that with <laughs> Stop yeah, it. That's a, that's a little off-putting. She's so young. <laughs> oh, my sweet little girl. <laughs> he doesn't do that then. Nasty I think it's fuck. Van Helsing that's like, oh, she's she's just a child, you know, with her boobs out. <laughs> just like, don't say that. <laughs> right after he fucking wrong? Like, sniffs Winona Ryder, like, right in the face. <laughs> <laughs> creepy old fuck. <laughs> what a masterful performance he gave, I swear. Uh, but yeah, Billy Campbell. <clears throat> Why couldn't we have more of him? Let's, shall we? <laughs> we'll find his address. We'll just have no, more like of him. No, like he went right on now. and he did like Rocketeer, I guess, you know, uh, actually before Bram Stoker's in 1991. But after that, he's uh, basically relegated to television, television movies and stuff. Yeah, and supporting roles. I mean, he never really caught on after The Rocketeer, but I mean, he's got classic good looks. I thought in The Rocketeer, he was very, very classically handsome. And, uh, Maybe he should have kept the mustache. Yeah, hey. <laughs> I'll take him either way. Well, I have really enjoyed talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula and really enjoyed watching it quite a bit. So thank you for adding this to the list. We have a lot of stuff coming up for you in February. After this, uh, we're continuing our romantic theme of February by talking about our top 10 favorite horror romances. Yes. Indeed. And there's so much gold to mine there. Yes, a lot, actually. And I was kind of surprised. Um, and we have a hot take coming out at the end of the month, too. So make sure you stick around for that. Um, as always, we are creating lots of bonus content over on Patreon. And we have a very special flashback episode coming. Uh, so head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. You can get all of our bonus content and early access to our episodes for as low as $2. And if you don't know what that episode is by now, you're probably just not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know what that episode is by now, I'll have to run to you. <laughs> or I have nothing. Whichever song fits. I don't know. <laughs> 
Guys, we'd like to know what you think about Bram Stoker's Dracula and our episode, all of our thoughts on it. You can find us on social media at The Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now Letterboxd, where we will be combining our ratings of movies that we've watched and putting them on there. So go check us out. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or you can call us at our hotline at 972-666-7733 and let your voice be heard and we will respond to it in kind. That's right. We'll be playing that voicemail or shooting the flames episode along with any reviews that we get over on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. We've gotten a couple that we're going to be reading in our next shooting the flames episode. So we're super excited about that. Keep them coming, guys. It's time for us to run off into the night following those children and the sweet music they make. So until our next episode, sweet dreams. (laughs) (laughs) What sweet music they make. Every time I say it, I sound like... What sweet music they make. (laughs) Feeble, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Fuck me. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Take me away from all this. Yes! <laughs> Calm down, Winona. Winona, just, your pills. I just want Winona to come up like right after they like they're like doing that whole thing. Take me away from all this death, and they're making out and everything. And all the guys, all the boys, just come crashing in to fight Dracula. I just want her to be like, "You ruined it. You ruined everything." <laughs> No, she has to go full on West Side Story and be like, don't you touch him. <laughs> no, she should have said that at the end. <laughs> We're going yes. to the church. We need to remake Get this movie. from him. Don't you touch him. him. <laughs> oh, she went full on Maria. <laughs> okay, shit. All right, I'm going to stop recording now.